We are spending a few weeks in Paul's first letter to the Christians in Thessalonica. It's always a little strange and confusing to my brain. We call people from Corinth, Corinthians. We call people from Ephesus, Ephesians. But when they come from Thessalonica, we call them Thessalonians. Like somebody messed that up somewhere, but I'm not going to complain about Greek. English is bad enough as it is. Uh, it's a short letter. It's very encouraging letter, and what, that's what we love about this letter. It is a simple letter. There is no complicated theology in this letter. There are no big ideas. Paul's basic encouragement through the entire letter is keep on doing what you're doing. Just keep it up. That's why we're calling it stand fast. Stand fast in your faith. Keep loving each other. Hold on to your hope. We all need encouragement like that at times. And we need to read it as encouragement. We need to read it as instructions for believers. You know, when we talk about commands, and the Bible is full of commands, commands are written in a verb tense that we call the imperative tense. You know, an imperative says, you must do this. There are no imperatives in this passage at all. There's not a single imperative here. And it's wrong for us to read it as imperatives. If we're not careful, we will use a text like this to beat people over the head, to tell them, you're wrong, you're a sinner, and I'm not. Because this is what the Bible says. It's a big mistake. Big mistake here. This letter was written to Christians. People in relationship with Christ. And so it's for you and me. And first and foremost, we have to read it for ourselves. Now, The key to this passage, which Bob just read for us, is found right there in verse 1 where Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. That's the key. Do you see the key? The key is, it all begins with a desire to please God. That's where we have to begin in this passage. So the desire to please God. If we get that wrong, we mess it all up. We might get that wrong, we mess up the entire passage. If we forget it's about pleasing God, then it just becomes about me and what I can do and how good of a person I am and how lousy of a person you are because you can't do all the good things that I do. It's not about me. It's not to be read that way. Verse 1, how you ought to walk and to please God. Pay attention to that word walk. It occurs two times in this passage. It sandwiches the whole passage. It happens in verse 1. It occurs again in verse 12. To walk. And obviously it means more than just to physically walk, right? It means this is how you ought to behave. We recognize some people by their walks, don't we? You know, for, for you older people, John Wayne comes on the screen, right? You're watching a John Wayne movie? He could be silhouetted, you know, walking in and the sun behind him. And you would know from that walk exactly who that person was, right? People do that. You, there's still people that you recognize by their walk. You know, Dad comes in at night and you hear those footfalls, you know that's Dad. And so everything, you, suddenly you straighten up. You know, you know Dad's footsteps. We had a neighbor, uh, Jim, or Jeff, Jeff Van E. Jeff Van E was the youth minister at the Kansas Christian Church years, years and years ago. Uh, and he was our neighbor also. And Jeff used to come over. And Jeff had a very distinct walk. And as soon as he hit the back porch, you knew it was Jeff. And, 
And because Jeff was a youth minister, suddenly my mom and dad would set up straighter and, you know, they would suddenly start, you know, every, you know, you put away certain things and you set up and you pay attention because the, the you know, preacher's coming to town. And they don't do that for me when I walk in now. But, but I, I learned as a kid, I learned how to do Jeff's walk. And I would come in the back door and stomp the way he stomped just to watch my dad suddenly straighten up. That was the only respect I ever got. You know, the only time when I imitated someone else's walk. And what Paul's saying is there ought to be something distinct about the way a Christian walks. It ought to be recognizable. Someone should see you, see the way that you behave and recognize that is a Christian. So he says in verses 2 and 3, "...for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus." For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I'm going to remind you again. I've been reminding you of this constantly and I will continue to remind you. These people in Thessalonica had only been Christians for a very short time. Just a few months. Maybe, maybe no more than six months or so. And so Paul is writing to them about how to behave and how to walk. Prior to that, some of them had been faithful Jews in the in the synagogue there in the city, and Paul went to the synagogue for three weeks and he preached and he said, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you, He is the Christ. He is the Messiah that God promised. And so they, they began following Jesus because Paul preached to them. Some of them were idol worshipers. Some of them were pagans. Some of them were, were Gentiles. And so Paul says that they left their idol worship. Now I mentioned last week that pagan worship, idol worship, very often involved sexual activity as part of worship, orgies and, and other activities. And Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, you turned, from the, from, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, your desire to please God changed your behavior. It changed your walk. Verse 3, he says, this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That's a big word, sanctification. We don't, use it an, we don't use it all that often. What does the word sanctification mean? Well, it comes from the word sanctuary, which is a, another word for temple. People sometimes call this room a sanctuary. I encourage you to not think of this room as a sanctuary. This, this room is not a sanctuary. It's, a, it's an auditorium. It's a, it's a wonderful room, but you're the sanctuary. Because God says the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Not, not in a room, but in you. You are the sanctuary. But we get this idea of sanctuary or sanctification from the temple. People says that a, Paul says that a, a, a sanctuary is a place that's devoted to God. And, and you are devoted to God. You are in the process of becoming a sanctuary. That is sanctification. Inside a sanctuary, there are items that are devoted to God, devoted to worship. They are items to be used for worship. The, those items are not to be used outside of worship. Those items are not to be used for other purposes. And so if I come back to verse 1 about pleasing God, then I have to realize that if I am going to be pleasing God, if I am going to be sanctified, if I am going to become a sanctuary where God's Spirit lives, I may need to change my walk. I may need to change my behavior. See, I can't please God if I'm not living in a way that pleases Him. Look again at verses 3-5. through five. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness 
and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. I'm going to remind you again. These words are for us. They are for Christians. Paul puts no expectation on the people that he refers to as Gentiles who do not know God. He puts no expectations on Gentiles who do not know God to live according to this standard. That's something that we have to remember. The goal of this standard is not just purity in our behavior. The goal is sanctification. It's about relationship with God. It's about our desire to please Him. We can't forgive that. We can't forget that. We can't make it just about behavior. Sometimes I think we're more concerned with being right than righteous. You know, there's a difference. We're more concerned with us being right than us being right before God. Than us being righteous before God. Verse 3, he says, this is the will of God. He doesn't say that it is Paul's will. He doesn't say that it's my will. He doesn't say it's the church's will. He says this is God's will. This is what sanctification looks like. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay. In the Greek, sexual immorality is one word. It's a little word. It is the word porneo. Porneo. Sound familiar? It's where we get pornography and all of that comes from that prefix there. Porneo. It means sexual immorality. That We've adapted that word for our own use. But in the Greek, porneo, sexual immorality refers to, this is the definition, any sexual activity outside the bounds of the husband and wife relationship. That is what he's referring to. Any sexual activity outside the bounds of a husband and wife relationship, outside of marriage. Look again at verses 3 and 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. We find ourselves pitted against society these days. We find ourselves being accused of being backwards and old-fashioned. We find ourselves being called narrow-minded. We even find ourselves being called bigoted. But what bothers me, what bothers me is not what's happening in society. And what bothers me is not the same-sex issues or whatever the issue this week is, because it seems like it changes constantly. What bothers me is the church. What bothers me is that the church stopped talking about holiness in sex a long time ago. When was the last time? When was the last time you heard anyone refer to marriage as holy matrimony? Holy matrimony. We don't have that concept anymore. We, we gave that up a, a long time ago. The Bible teaches holiness in the husband and wife relationship. Do we see it as holy? Or, or is it just kind of a joke? Is it, is it just a contract? Is it something that you can either get into or get out of? Is there anything holy about it? You realize two people become one. Two people become united. They become one flesh. You realize that we get to participate in the creation process with God. We, we get to make new people. You realize it's as close as you can come to heaven on earth 
and that relationship with God that we will enjoy for eternity, this is as close as you can come to it on earth. We stopped talking about holiness in marriage and holiness in sex a long time ago. We, we gave up that standard. The church did. And we started saying things like, well, as long as they love each other. And we started saying things like, well, as long as, as, long as they're careful. As long as they're being safe. And I've actually heard Christian leaders say of marriage, it's just a piece of paper. No, it's not. No, it's, it's not just a piece of paper. Verse 3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is how we welcome God into our lives. This is how we welcome God into our homes. This is how you welcome God into who you are. And now, the world doesn't understand, or, or excuse me, we don't understand, we don't understand why the world is balking when suddenly they want to change the rules. We stopped talking about the rules a long time ago. We gave up the standard a long time ago. Paul tells us here, God has a standard for holiness. I cannot please God if I'm not living in that standard. And that standard is called sanctification. What's the purpose of a sanctuary? It's a place for God's Spirit to dwell. It's a place for God to make His home. Look ahead in verses, verses 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. If I disregard this, if I declare that this, this standard is old-fashioned, this standard is not in keeping with society today, this standard is not necessary, if I, if I say that, that, this standard is, that there is no standard, that there is no sanctification, then I'm not disregarding the rules. I'm disregarding God's presence in my life. I'm disregarding His Spirit in my life. And that won't do. That's not what we're called to do. That's not going to please God. Instead, if I'm going to please God, if we're going to please God, then we're going to have to love people. We're going to have to love others the way that Jesus loved us. Verse 9. Verse 9 comes along and you would think Paul has changed the topic. You would think that he's just said, okay, we're done with that. Let's move on to something else. But he hasn't. He comes to verse 9 and he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. <clears throat> you know, we tend to discount brotherly love. If you're around the church for any length of time, if you've been a Christian for much time at all, sooner or later you'll hear some preacher stand up and say, there are three kinds of love in the Bible. There is eros love, which we're, where we get the word erotic, and we are not going to talk about that today. There is brotherly love, phileo, which is where we get the name for Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, right? So there is brotherly love, the love between two people. Uh, who are related, you know, that you do that. And then there is agape love, right? Agape love is that self-sacrificing love, the love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross for God so loved the world, for God so gave of Himself in His love 
that, that He sent His one and only Son. That is where we get agape love. And we say agape love is the pinnacle. Agape love is true Christian love. And, and we don't talk about the others. Do not discount the power of brotherly love. And Paul says here, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Brotherly love. Love that adopts someone. Love that says, you're my responsibility now. Love that says, you're in my family now. I'm going to take care of you. You can expect the best from me because I want the best for you. That is brotherly love. And that is powerful. And there are people in our world who need that so badly. There are people in our community who need to know that they belong to someone, that someone is there to care for them. We need to be showing them brotherly love. Paul says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Really? How did that happen? You know, well, maybe, maybe he's talking about, well, we, we preached Christ. You know, we came and we started preaching about Jesus and we told them that Jesus loved them and that's how God showed them how to love. Well, that may be it. Paul and Silas, they go to Thessalonica. They start preaching. They start caring for the people. They're taking care of them. They're meeting their needs. They are loving them with the love that they have received. So maybe that's it. But, what if it's something else? He just got done, just in the last verse before this, he got done saying that God gives His Spirit to you. God has given His Holy Spirit to you. Do you think there might be a connection between God giving them His Holy Spirit and then Him saying, now love each other? God says that, Paul says in, in, in Romans that through the Spirit we are adopted. We become family through the Holy Spirit. We are adopted into God's family. His presence, His Holy Spirit in us teaches us what love is all about. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way it, it ought to work. That's what we've, we've got to focus on. You know, that, that's the way it should be. It, it's not about we're right and they're wrong. It's about you may be wrong, but we're going to love you anyway. We're just going to keep on loving you. A friend of mine Whenever he talks about his church, he always, he always says, this is a church that loves people. And I love that. Anytime he, he talks about his church, if he's telling people about his church, he will say, you need to understand, this is a church that loves people. I think that is beautiful. You know? and, and I've been to his church, and I can, I can tell you, they love people. They love people incredibly. But you know, I could say that about us too. I could say, of Kansas Christian Church, this is a church that loves people. It is, isn't it? We, we love people. And I can point to things and I can tell you stories that would prove to you that we love people. But I think it's a shame that when we talk about a church, we have to explain, oh, this church, this is a church that loves people. I was driving through the hills and hollers of Kentucky one Sunday morning and I came across the church and the church had the sign, first blah, blah, blah church or whatever church it was. And then underneath it said, in, with quotes, the church that cares. Aren't they all supposed to care? Yeah. And what got me about that sign was, it says, the church that cares. That meant that somewhere in town, there was a church that didn't care. <laughs> they probably didn't have a sign that said that, but I guarantee you everyone knew which church that was that didn't care. This church may have at one time been a part of that church that cares. It's a shame that we have to say we're a church that loves people, but we are. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, 
For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. It wasn't just about Thessalonica, but everybody in that region, everybody in their county or their state knew that this church would love you. But we urge you, brothers, to, to do this more and more. We should simply just say, this is a church. And people should say, oh, they love people. That's what they do. That's what a church does. It, it loves people. It's sad that they don't do that. It's sad that we have to make that distinction. And that, that is on us. It's on us in a big part because a long time ago, we forgot verse 1 that it's about pleasing God. We forgot we're supposed to be about pleasing God. And instead, we made it about the rules. We made it about our rules. And we told people, we can't love you if you do this. We can't love you if you live like that. We can't love you if you have this lifestyle. That is not what Paul says here. Paul says, God has showed you Himself how to love people. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has shown you how to love others. Now, do so more and more. And the promise is, when we live to please God, other people will benefit from our love. When we live to please God, when that's our focus, other people will benefit from our love. Again, looking at second half of verse 10, he says, but we urge you brothers to do this, to do this, to do what? To, to love, to have that brotherly love. We urge you to do this, to love uh, more and more. Verse 11, and to aspire to live quiet lives and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that, this is the purpose, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. There's that word again. This time it's not about pleasing God. It's about how people outside the church are going to view you. But wouldn't it be interesting if those were the same thing? Wouldn't it be interesting if, if that was the same don't you think people expect consistency from us? They expect consistency in what we believe and how we walk. They expect consistency in how we love. God expects the same thing. So what does loving more and more look like? This is, this is my favorite part. <laughs> what does loving God, what does loving one another more and more look like? Look at verse 11. This, is, this belongs on your refrigerator right here. Post this one on Facebook sometime. And to aspire to live quietly. I've kind of broken that one already. But And to mind your own affairs. I love that. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. Mind your own affairs. This seems to have been a constant problem in Thessalonica. If Thessalonica had one hang-up, it was this. Because in 2 Thessalonians, which Paul wrote just a couple months later, like he gets the letter back and he turns around, or he sends him the letter and he's like, oh, I forgot to tell him this. And he sends off 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. There's that word again, right? People recognize you by your walk. For we hear that some among you, or some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. <laughs> not busy at work, but busy bodies. Can you imagine that? In the first century, Christians were thought of as busybodies? 
That just blows my mind. They were busybodies. Has anyone here, just let's be honest, has anyone here ever known a Christian who was a busybody? Anyone? Okay, now yell out their names. No, don't do that part. We won't do that. We're consistent. We've been doing it for 2,000 years. We've been getting up in other people's business for 2,000 years. He says, mind your own affairs. It was a problem then, it's a problem now. (laughs) Can we love people? Can we love people without feeling like they have to change so that we can love them better? Can we love people without feeling like we have to change them? We have to show them that they need to change? Can we do that? Can, can we just love people? Can we just love them and, and as Paul would say, and do so more and more? Can we love them the way God loved us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Can we love people the way that God has loved us? Can we love them without feeling like they have to meet our standards? Can we love them when they've broken the rules? Can we love them when they've missed the standard? Can we love them when they've broken their hearts and broken other people's hearts? You know, I know the word's not used in this passage, but somewhere between this desire to please God and this desire to walk properly before outsiders, somewhere between those two, it sounds an awful lot like grace. It sounds an awful lot like being gracious to people. This is grace. It is pleasing to God. And it is walking properly before outsiders. And at that point, they can most see the love of Jesus at work within our lives. And God's Spirit alive within us. If we stand fast on this, we will please God. And we can change the lives of some very wonderful people. Let's pray. Father, I'm just amazed not only that You love us, but that You love us so much that You would tell us what pleases You. You don't leave it up to to, to our, our mentality to try to figure it out. You don't leave it up to guesswork. You don't leave it up for us to, to debate it or, or to, to try to decide what would be best. You show us what pleasing You looks like. And Father, even more amazing, You don't leave it up to us to decide what love looks like. You Yourself have shown us what love is and how to love one another. And so along with Paul, I would encourage my friends here in Kansas to love one another more and more. Lord, as we desire to please You, we cannot let go of that desire to walk in such a way that other people will see Your love. And so Father, we thank You for Your great love for us. We thank You for the opportunity we have to love others. As we leave this place today, as we go into our world this week. I pray that they would recognize You in the way that we love, the way that we care, the way we forgive, the way that we show Your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.